0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> We're going to look at verses 25 to uh, 28, and I apologize, I have the eternal cold. Carried over from last week, so you're going to have to listen to me bark for the next 30 to 40 minutes. I apologize for that. A um, couple things before we jump in, so you know. A couple people have made comments. Yes, we know that there's framing on the wall here, and it's not some unique design that you're supposed to figure out. It's a work in progress. So uh, over the, the weeks ahead, you'll see we're going to eventually have a backdrop that will will look nice and, and accent the stage. So um, and no, that is not the dimensions of the cross because some people said, "Man, that's a huge cross. It's going to like go all the way through the roof." No, it's it'll be look a little different, you'll see as it kind of unfolds. So this morning, we're, we're jumping into the, the next uh, step from last week. If you are here, we started a new series called um, A New Way of Living. And so we're, as we've made this transition, both name, identity, location, and, and now moving forward, we want to embrace a new identity, a new way that God has desired for us to live. And so to do that, we're looking at really chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, where Paul describes in detail, this is what it looks like when life is new, when there's actually a genuine change, from the inside out, and how we become brand new. And so this morning, we're going to look at a handful of verses and talk about really what Paul does is he kind of peels back the the thin veneer of our life, our exterior, and takes a peek inside and talks about what newness actually looks like when we go beyond the surface. It's kind of like in the next, in the four verses we're going to look at, Paul kind of takes on different topics that it's kind of like, let's take a behind-the-scenes look at what's really going on and how to move from... Living a life that always is about how do we present a certain kind of concept to people, or how do we make people believe something that's not true about us. In a sense, what he's talking about is how do we stop living in hypocrisy and start living in authenticity, which is, it's difficult, and it's dangerous, and sometimes scary, because that means what's inside of us, behind the scenes, has to come to the forefront. Because you and I work really hard on the exterior and what we present to people because we want people to think a certain thing about us or believe something about us. But what God is concerned about is what goes on inside of us and the transformation he wants to bring. And when he does that, only he can transform us. He wants to bring that to the forefront. We're concerned with the outside. God is concerned with the heart. Because if he gets the heart, then the outside takes care of itself. But how much of our life, if you think through in your day life, how much of our lives is consumed with the outward, not just physical appearance, but the outward perception that others have of us and how we want to maintain that? If you think about it, there's a lot that goes into that. It's it's kind of like how we treat our houses or how we treat our cars, even sometimes how we treat our physical bodies. We want the outside to look good to make people believe a certain thing. So my first car that I bought, it only lasted me four months. It was a 1971 Dodge Demon, and I should have figured out from the name. I probably shouldn't have bought it. But my dad and I looked at it, and we drove it, and it seemed like it, you know, it was cheap. It was only 750 bucks, and it ran. It didn't look very nice, but it ran. I thought, okay, this will work. So we bought it. And I had a little bit of extra money, and so I thought, well, I'm going to start fixing it up. So first thing was, I got a paint job, and, uh, and so it looked at least it looked good on the outside. And then the inside, the interior was kind of messed up, so I started working on the interior. It didn't have a stereo, so I started working on getting a stereo. So I was doing all these things, and after about a month, I noticed when I was driving it that there was like this ticking sound when it got really warmed up and really hot on hot days, and I thought, oh, it's just an old car. You know, old cars kind of have noises and stuff. And so I drove it for a couple weeks, and that, that ticking got a little bit louder and louder. And so I thought, ah, oh, I'll take it to a mechanic. And so I took it to a mechanic, and he looked at it, and he said, yeah. He goes, there's something not quite right. He goes, I haven't figured it out. He goes, keep driving it. And so I drove it another couple of weeks, and he came back. And now it wasn't another ticking. It was like a knocking, like this really loud knocking. And so I took it in, and he said, um, you got a problem. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, uh, your crankshaft's going to go, and that pretty much means your car is toast, There's nothing you can do about it. In fact, it's going to cost more to replace the engine than it is the car. And I looked at that car that had a new paint job, and the interior was getting better, and the stereo and all that stuff, and I just thought, oh, no. It looks great, but it's a piece of junk, and it doesn't run. And I remember that was like a lesson. My my dad actually had to help me, like, recover from that financially because I put all my money into it, only to find out it lasted four months. And I think sometimes that's kind of the way that we live our lives. We put all of our energy, all of our effort into the appearance of what we think newness looks like. It's kind of like when I counsel couples. One of the things that's always true is couples who are are getting ready to get married tend to put hour upon hour upon hour into the wedding and very little into the marriage. And that's the problem, is that so many times we do that in our lives. We invest so much on what, what it looks like, what the perception is. But what God wants us to do is take take a little journey behind the scenes, open the door into our lives, pull back that thin veneer, and say, let's deal with what's really there. Let's be transparent. Let's be authentic. And so this morning, let me read, starting in verse 25. We'll read verse uh, 28 of Ephesians 4, as Paul calls us to be brand new. He says, Therefore, each of you must... Put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are uh, uh, members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands that they may have something to share with those in need. So, we just want to walk through the passage and see what is Paul, what is the behind the scenes things that Paul's probing into to say, listen, if you're truly going to have a new way of living, then you're going to have to go beyond skin deep. You're going to have to go beyond the exterior. and are to get to the core. And the first thing that he mentions, look in verse 25, is that one of the things we're going to have to stop doing to reject hypocrisy and to be transparent and authentic is to stop being deceptive. Now, for some of it's like, I'm not deceptive. Paul says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood. If you were here last week, we talked about, Paul says, taking off the old and putting on the new. So he says the same thing and uses the term falsehood, which means it's not necessarily that you tell a lie every time your mouth opens. It's the perception that you want to portray for other people to believe about you that isn't altogether true. It's, it's like a cloak of falsehood. I can hide behind this facade. I don't have to really be honest about what's going on inside. Paul's saying you have to take that off and be authentically transparent of what's really going on inside of you because if we 're honest with ourselves, all of us want people to like us, all of us want others to think certain things about us, all of us want others to not think certain things about us, and we, we work really hard to make sure that we keep that facade going. When we were up in Newburgh, we had a uh, our video guy was had some crazy ideas about things he liked to do and one of the things he he wanted to do the first Easter we were there he said we really got to promote Easter and and so the church that we were at we would go mobile and we would go meet in a high school gym or a middle school gym so we had one big service and so he goes we want people to come so he came up with this whole idea of how like over a four-week period we could kind of promote Easter and it included me getting into a bunny costume and going around Newburgh and interviewing people and asking them the question what does Easter mean to you so I'm like, I'm good with that. So, so we did that and, and uh, went in front of you know, Taco Bell and different places. And the funniest re- reply was, was funny. It was, it was, this guy said, I, you know, I said, what is Easter? He goes, oh, he goes, it's harvest season. He goes, I have a miracle mo- marijuana card, and it's always harvest season for me at Easter. That went r- over really well on Easter Sunday when everybody heard that. But so we were doing that, and he said, this is just not enough. You have got to do more. I'm like, well, well what do you want to do? He goes, can you dance? I'm like, no, I can't dance. He goes, it would be really cool if we showed you around town like dancing in the bunny. I'm like, I can't dance. I can try, but it'll be ridiculous. So he had a friend who pastored like two hours away who was a phenomenal dancer. So he got him to put on the bunny costume and he filmed him all over town dancing. I mean, the guy had amazing moves, right? And so each week the question was who is the bunny? Because nobody knew it was just a bunny costume. I didn't know if it was me or anybody else. So they kept saying, who's the bunny? And so finally on Easter Sunday morning at, at our Easter service, we did the big reveal. We filmed it. And I, on the, on the video, I lift off the bunny head, the, 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 the costume, the mask, and it's me. And everyone's like, no way. I had no idea Pastor John could dance like that. And so I, I did, seriously, I did my best to try to explain to them no, it really wasn't me. It wasn't me, it was somebody else. In fact, there were some some kids in our youth group that were so impressed with my dancing skills, and I'm not exaggerating. To this day, I cannot convince them otherwise that it really wasn't me. It was another guy. Now, there was a part of me that wanted not to tell anyone, to say, yeah, it really was me. I am that cool. I can dance that well, because I wanted people like me. Now, not to that extreme, but how many of us walk around in our life with a mask on? with another identity that we want people to think of us. But if we were honest, if we took off the mask, what would people really see? See, because what Paul's saying is that you're living with this cloak of falsehood over. You're not being the good, bad, and indifferent of what your life is not coming to the surface. And so you can't be truly brand new because God wants to deal from the inside out, not the outside in. Then the second thing Paul goes on in, in the next verse in verse 26, this one becomes far more relationally focused and that is we have to stop holding a grudge. Paul says in verse 26, he says, do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Does anybody want to admit that you've ever gone to bed ticked off? Raise your hand, put off falsehood, tell the truth, right? We all have. And now is Paul saying literally, never go to bed angry. Now, yeah, you can take the literal sense, but what he's saying is don't allow the anger that you may have towards another person, the relational fracture you may have, to go on and on and on without it being resolved. Because the longer you allow that thing to be unresolved, the worse it will get. And so he's, he's, he's quoting from, from um, the Old Testament, but he's also he's making a statement that it's a principle of life to not allow yourself to go to bed angry. In other words, to not sleep on anger, to not fall asleep while you're angry, And don't fall asleep, not only physically, but don't fall asleep on anger in your life, which we have a tendency to do. Somebody says something, somebody does something, somebody offends us, and instead of dealing with that anger, we just let it simmer. We just kind of hang on to it. Maybe for a little while we don't say anything to anybody else. Maybe we just try to avoid that person. But what happens, because of our own sin nature, the longer that grudge is there, the bigger it becomes the deeper the pain goes, the more fierce the anger becomes. And before we know it, what happens is now we are avoiding that person at all costs. And now we are sharing with other people how mad we are and how offended we are at that person because what's happened is inside of us, there's this poison. Anger is like poison, and really, in a sense, what it is, it's like a balloon that, that, that keeps taking in air, and eventually it's going to reach its maximum kind of expandability, and eventually what happens when you keep blowing on a balloon, it explodes, it pops. And that's what happens when we don't deal with grudges. We don't deal with issues. It could be in your your relationship, in in marriage. Something comes up and you're hurt by your spouse or something, there's a misunderstanding and you brush it off, but it's still underneath the surface. But you thought, ah, I'm just going to stuff it. And you're just quiet about it. And then what happens is eventually it becomes bitterness. And then eventually bitterness explodes on that person. I don't ask you to raise your hand, but I know all of us have experience with your spouse where you say something to them and they explode and you're thinking, wait a second, where did that come from? Because that doesn't that didn't come from what I just said. That had to be something that was building up like this dam that suddenly exploded. See, that's an old pattern of living that we used to live in that Paul's saying, you can't live that way anymore. Now that you've accepted Jesus, now that you understand his death on the cross, he's extended you forgiveness, you can no longer remain in anger with other people. You can't hold a grudge. And there's a reason this is so important. This is kind of the crux, I think, of what Paul's getting at in this passage. Because this influences, when we hold a grudge, we hold an offense against other people. It affects us, and then eventually it affects other people, and then eventually it affects the person who we're offended by. And it starts to weigh, we, kind of weave its way through our, our lives and our thinking, which really leads to, to the next thing that, that Paul talks about, which is really important, and this is something that we get caught off guard by. In verse 27, another way that you and I reject hypocrisy is "Stop giving access to the enemy." Now, let me read what Paul says. He says, "And do not give the devil a foothold." What did he just say before that? He said, "Don't fall asleep on anger." And the next phrase is. And don't give the devil a foothold. How do we give the devil a foothold in our life? By falling asleep on anger. By living in unreconciled, broken relationships. Now, this is important. Why? Because you and I, we think, okay, well, I would never, like, open the front door to the enemy in my life and let him harass me. In fact, I'm following Jesus, and I don't have to worry about that because Jesus sacrificed on the cross. But the enemy never attacks from the front. He always attacks from behind. And he always attacks from within. He finds back doors that are open into our life, and that's how he comes after us. He never comes walking in the front door. He's a little too smart for that. And the way he does it primarily within the church or the body of Christ is through our fractured relationships. He doesn't have to attack from the outside. He can attack from the in. Because what happens is that you and I allow the enemy access unintentionally. We don't wake up in the morning and say, well, I'm just going to open the doors wide open to the devil today. Well, none of us do that. But the way that we treat each other in relationships, if we don't deal with unresolved anger and unreconciled relationships, we open back doors and the enemy starts to come in. And then we kind of scratch our head and think, how did he do that? How did he get in? How did, I, didn't, I didn't allow him in, but we did unintentionally. And that's why we have to be very careful because the enemy never works in the forefront, in the light. He always works in darkness and deception. It's always behind the scenes." And sometimes you and I don't even know how he gains access, but we know he's at work. A number of years ago, I got up one Sunday morning, or Saturday morning, and kind of our normal routine, um, not as much now, the kids are a little bit busier, but when we were they were a little younger, Sunday, Saturday morning, I would like to make waffles or pancakes, and so we'd kind of spend time as a family. And So I went to our pantry, and I opened up the door, and I, I was looking, and I saw um, on one of the shelves, our, our loaf of bread had a little hole in, in the bag, and I thought, that's strange, and, And it wasn't like a round hole. It was like kind of a jagged hole. And then I I looked on another shelf, and I saw some Top Ramen, and there was a hole in the Top Ramen. And I looked on another shelf, and there was a hole in a bag of chips. And and then I started putting this whole thing together, and I realized that there was a mouse living in our pantry. And he was having a heyday because it's like smorgasbord. I mean, it was like the buffet of all buffets for this mouse. And so, of course, as soon as I figured this out, I'm thinking, I'm going to kill this thing. I'm after it. So I went to the, the hardware store, and I got some mousetraps, and I set them up and, in our pantry down on the floor because he was somehow gaining access. I don't know how, but he had, he had to get up and climb on the shelves. And so I, I got mousetraps. I put, like, cheese Whiz and peanut butter, tried different things on three or four different uh, mouse traps. And so and I'm not kidding. First night, I put it on, I'm waiting for, like, the snap to wake me up. You know, I'm going to get him. I'm going to see him twitching. You know, and I got him, right? <laughs> totally quiet. Nothing that first night. I go in, check the pantry. The mousetraps are still set but there's no peanut butter and there's no cheese Whiz. They're gone. I'm like, no way. So I did it again the second night. Second night, same thing. Traps are still set, but the bait's gone. I'm like, this guy has figured out how way he goes and he literally was licking off the food without setting the trap. I said, okay, I'm, I'm bringing out the big guns now. So I got the sticky paper. You know the sticky paper? So I laid down a whole thing on the floor of the pantry with all this sticky paper and I did the mouse traps on top of it. I'm like, I'm getting him this time. So the next morning I come in, same thing. The food has gone off of all the four mouse traps, and there's no mouse on the sticky paper. There's this like eighth-inch border on, on the edge of the sticky paper, and he figured out how to walk on that and get to the food and lick it off the trap and get out without being caught. I said, that's it. I'm getting decon. So I did. I went and got decon, and I put poison in our pantry. I'm going to kill this sucker. I'm going to do whatever I can. He goes right past the decon, <laughs> past the paper, to the traps, and eats the food again. I'm like, I'm done. So finally, I figured out he's not going to eat the decon, but he's eating the peanut butter. So I took the decon, and I ground it up, and I put it in the peanut butter, and I killed the sucker. (laughs) Finally. Some of you are like cheering. Some of you are like, oh no, you hurt the poor little mouse. Yeah. The disease-infested rodent that was living in my pantry. I killed him. Yes. But I was still trying to figure out how did he get into our house? We, had a, we have a pretty clean house, and we didn't live, I mean, we were in, Newburgh's more rural, but where we lived wasn't very rural, it was in a neighborhood and a housing development, so I was trying to figure it out, I could never figure it out, until a month later, I took my car to get an oil change. And when the mechanic was working on it, he goes, he goes uh, you need to replace your air filter, which is always, they always say that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes, no, you need to replace your air filter. How long has it been? I said, I don't know. I, I forgot. And he goes, I said, well, why? He goes, you know, normally they take it out if you've been it, and they show you how dirty it is. He wasn't taking it out. He goes, no, you need to come look at this. I said, okay. So he went out, and he opened the, the, the cover over the air filter, and it didn't look like an air filter. It was all kind of torn up, and there were mouse droppings. And I said, what's going on there? He goes, you had a mouse living in your air filter. And I said, oh! And I started to tell the mechanic, yeah, I had a mouse in my house, I couldn't figure out how it got there. He goes, I know how it got there. He goes, you must have parked somewhere where the mouse got access to your car. And he crawled up into your air filter and he hung out there for a while. And then when he got to your house and he got a little hungry, he figured out how to get out of the air filter and get into your house and into your pantry. And now I figured it out. So guess what I do now? I check my air filter. Because you never know. In fact, someone in, in first service told me they had a mouse get in their engine and chew on the electrical wires, so their car wouldn't start. They, they chewed the starter wire so that they, when they turned the car over, nothing would happen. Now, it's all under the hood, so you don't see it. You don't realize what's going on. See, the same thing is th- th- there's evidence that the enemy's at work when we have fractured relationships, but we can't figure out, why. how did he get there? And this is what Paul's saying. The old way is to live in unreconciled relationships and let the enemy go crazy in your life, the new way is to realize the way he gains access is when you allow your anger to be unresolved with people. And you you allow your relationships to be unreconciled with people. And then there's a third thing uh, that Paul, or excuse me, a fourth thing that Paul goes on to say about rejecting hypocrisy. Again, the behind the scenes. He says, stop being on the take. This is interesting. Verse 28, he says, He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work. Now you think, what in the world? Paul's just kind of lobbing something randomly. Remember, this is a behind-the-scenes look. So Paul's going in, and he's saying, listen, put off falsehood, because take off that outward appearance that you're trying to keep everybody believing a certain thing. And then he's saying, by the way, I'm going to go behind the scenes again. The enemy's at work, because you're letting the, the anger control you, and you're giving him a foothold in your life, even though you don't want to. And then he says, by the way... There's another point of falsehood in your life, and that is you're on the take constantly, not on the give. That means you're using people and circumstances to gain for yourself, for your own benefit, at the expense of other people. And so what he's saying is you can't live that way anymore, where you will present a certain need that you want, and you will use other people and other kind of mechanisms to gain access to that. He says, don't do that anymore. Don't project this oh, woes me, I need help, I'm the victim, as a way of manipulating, basically saying, stop doing that and get a job. That's what he's saying, and kind of in the monetary, this is bigger than just the monetary, but he's just talking about stop using circumstances and people for your own benefit, and make sure that you're taking care of your own needs, and then we'll talk a little bit further. He goes beyond that. Why is this so important? Because what's the default? is that whether, whether we know it or not, many times we take advantage of every circumstance that's presented to us of how can I use this for my benefit? How can I gain from this? In a sense, how can I still do the least amount possible and gain the most amount in the process? That's how, we, how our culture functions. If you're, you know, you're going to get a deal, you try to get a deal, even if that deal comes at the expense of somebody else. Here's a perfect example. A couple years ago, um, they were doing running numbers, um, looking at unemployment nationwide, and they did a study to figure out, you know, the way unemployment's supposed to work. Somebody loses their job, so unemployment kicks in to supply for their needs for a season of time. And while they're unemployment, they are actively pursuing employment. That's part of the requirement. They check up on that. And then when you get a job, you no longer get unemployment. Aren't we agreed? That's how it worked. A couple of years ago, when they did a study, they discovered that $14 billion annually was going to people who were no longer pursuing employment, had actually gotten a new job, and had neglected to report that they had a new job. $14 billion. Now, most people are like, oh, man, we're so inefficient. Our government's so stupid. No, it's not the government's fault. It's the lack of integrity in us that people would be on the take for $14 billion from the federal government that they didn't need any longer or they weren't abiding by the rules of that contract. See, that's what happens in our culture, and that's acceptable. In fact, most people, if we did like a survey on the street right now, probably about 6 out of 10 Americans would say, man, if the money's coming, let it keep coming, right? It's an error on their part, so we might as well just benefit from the error. Paul's saying that's the old way of doing it. You're, you're presenting something about yourself that is not altogether true so that you can benefit from it. Now, I'm not targeting, I'm not saying anyone's committing uh, unemployment fraud in this room, unless you are, then you need to stop. But think about it in your own life. What things have you portrayed to be true about yourself that are not true so that you can benefit either relationally or monetarily? Paul's saying you can't live that way anymore. That's not authentic. That is deceptive. That is falsehood, once again, being put over our lives. So then, Paul, in the, through, laced again throughout these four verses, Paul then talks about, this is rejecting hypocrisy, but then this is embracing and living authentically in our life. And how do we do that? Look, go back to verse 25. The first thing he mentions is that you and I have to value honesty. So he says in verse 25, Speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. Now, when we say value honesty, we're thinking, well, yeah, I'm a person of integrity. I tell the truth. Not altogether true. And the reason why is when Paul says, he says, speak truthfully to his neighbor. He's, neighbor is not just the person who lives next door to you. He's referring in terms of the context of the body of Christ, your brothers and sisters in the Lord. He's saying, speak truthfully to them. Now we think, oh, that's, that's easy enough. Not necessarily. When you think about telling people the truth, either about your life or telling them the truth about their lives, there's a whole nother level of fear that kicks in. Speaking truthfully to each other means having the courage in love to talk to somebody about something that may not be right in their life. And now, the reason Paul brings this up is because falsehood would say, it would go to the two extremes, which is, and this is how we do it, truth can be used as a weapon to hurt, or I can be used as a resource to help. See, what we do is, if if we're afraid that someone is going to be offended by what we say or upset, what do we do? We go to the extreme side of falsehood, which is, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to be quiet. Because I know if I say anything, it's just going to upset things. They're going to get offended. And I would rather just kind of keep everything calm. Or we go to the other extreme and say, I value honesty and truth. Therefore, I'm going to tell all the truth all the time. And that means that you're going to assault people with the truth. And that part of it, you take joy in uncovering other people's sin, and you make sure that they know it. And so truth doesn't become a resource to help. It becomes a weapon to injure people. And so we go to those extremes, as opposed to what Paul's saying is, if you value people, and that's why we always, we've heard the phrase from the scripture it says, speak the truth in truth love. We have a tendency to forget the love part. We like to speak the truth. Jesus came in truth, and he was truth, and he spoke truth, but Jesus also demonstrated what love looks like, and there's a difference. How can Jesus hang out with a bunch of sinners who somehow like him, even though he's truth? How can Jesus go have lunch with a deceptive, conniving, Thief named Zacchaeus, and just while having lunch with him, Zacchaeus basically repents of everything he's ever done and wants to pay back four times what he's ripped off of people. How does that happen? How come Jesus didn't offend Zacchaeus but Zacchaeus was transformed because Jesus was able to show love and speak truth together? And if we're going to live in a new way together as a church family, that means. I have to be willing to value honesty in such a way that I will not be silent when my brother or my sister is living in sin or is struggling and needs the truth. But at the same time, I'm not going to be a truth hunter that goes around looking for ways that I can apply the truth to show people that they're wrong. There's a balance between the the two. And for some of us, we we go to the extremes, but that means also not only speaking the truth, but receiving the truth. You don't have to raise your hand. Anybody ever had somebody say something to you that you knew was true, but it still hurt? You don't have to raise your hand, but it's true. It happens. It's painful. But sometimes, you and I need that truth, even though it's painful, because it's the only thing that's going to open our eyes to the reality of what's going in, in in our lives. But that's how do we respond to it. See, when, when we think about sharing the truth or extending the truth, we can be critical or we can be caring. But when it comes to receiving the truth, How do we receive the truth? Are we humble and do we listen and say, yeah, you know, even though I might not see that, that might be true about me. And if it is, then I really need to take a step back and think about what that means for my life. Or, which many of us struggle with, is when somebody shares the truth, what happens? Whoop, here goes the defenses. Oh, no, no, that's not true about me. How dare you would say that about me? Right. All the different kind of smoke screens we throw at people and defense mechanisms and that. How could you how could you say something like that? And we get all defensive. Where does that come from? That comes from insecurity. That comes from not knowing who you are. And because of that, not knowing who you are, you try to be something that you're not. You try to be like the Wizard of Oz. You try to pull the levers and you try to have a big booming voice and fire and smoke to make people believe. But deep down inside, you don't even know who you are. because of that when truth comes your way even though you might know it's true you don't want to admit it's true and therefore you react strongly instead of saying you know what if we're going to speak truthfully to each other then i need to be able to extend truth and i need to be able to receive truth and that means i have to be willing to listen to people who are going to say things that maybe i don't want to hear and then review. Now, I'm not, I'm not, let, me, let me underscore this because that means, wow, then I just need to be telling people. every Now, there's truth, and then there's, there's customized truth. Be careful that your truth is not your truth, and you want it to be your truth. So you say, hey, I'm speaking truth to you. What if it's not God's truth? Be careful of that because some people would say, oh, I'm just going to give you the truth, but really it's, it's their truth. It's what they want to say, not necessarily what God wants to say because truth, again, can be a weapon that either harms people or it can be a resource that actually helps people. And then there's a second thing that Paul goes on. Talking about living authentically, he tells you and I that we have to seek reconciliation. Verse 26, going back to the same thing of the enemy's work, but he says, in your anger, do not sin. What is he saying? He's saying that it's possible to be angry and not sin. But it's also possible to be angry and sin. All of us have been angry at least once or a hundred times in our life, haven't we? But the difference is, what Paul's saying is, is that if you realize that the anger that you have can lead to a foothold that the enemy brings into your life, which leads to a fractured relationship, then you are going to learn to deal with your anger in such a way that you don't sin because instead of reacting and being offended and being hurt and letting it simmer, you go and you seek reconciliation with the person who made you angry. That's the difference. It is not a sin to be angry. It is a sin to stay angry. And for many of us, we live in anger. It's right there underneath the surface. And instead of going and dealing with it and seeking reconciliation with our relationships, we just kind of like let it go and think, ah, oh, it'll be okay, or, or I'm not going to talk to that person. And then it just, underneath the surface, it's just, it's there. And it hangs on to us. And over time, what ends up happening is that it, it starts to poison every aspect of our lives. You cannot be, for a long period of time, angry at one person, and that not affect your other relationships. It does. It makes you a hard person. It makes you a bitter person. And that's why all of us, at some point or another, we have to set an expiration date on our anger. We can't say, I'm just going to remain angry. I'm just going to avoid that person, and I'll never have to deal with them. No, you will deal with them, even if they're not around, because you're still angry at them. You're still bitter at them. See, no, you wouldn't go to your refrigerator this afternoon and find a, a gallon of milk that's like a month, like stale dated a month ago, and take it out and have a bowl of cereal, would you? I hope not. Please don't do that. Why? Because there's an expiration date on milk that says, if you use it after this date, chances are it's going to be bad, it's going to be sour, and it could make you sick. But why will we do the same thing with anger? Is we'll erase the expiration date on our anger and say, I can still be angry. I can still live this way. There has to be that limit where we finally say, you know what, I'm not going to be an angry person anymore. And we're going to do what Paul says also in Romans 12. He says, as far as it, as long as it depends on you, to live at peace with all people. Which means, in, and I, this every single time we talk about this topic in our church, I have people, I had somebody come up for a service, the same thing. It's always, well, I've tried, but they don't want to resolve. Then you've done what God's asked you to do. You have sought reconciliation. If someone doesn't run and reconcile with you, that is their responsibility before God. Let the Holy Spirit work on them. But you seek after them to make it Right. And and try to live at peace and then let God take care of the other person. Now, the ultimate goal is that it's reciprocated, that that reconciliation works and that everything comes to a place of peace, which we'll talk about in a moment. So value honesty and seek reconciliation. And then look at verse 26 and 27. We read again, to live authentically means you have to fight for unity. This is what's hard. It says, in your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry and do not give the devil a foothold. Living authentically, living right with people, living in unity, comes with a price. Wouldn't it be great if we all just got along? Remember Rodney King? How well that works. Just, just all get along, right? If you put a, a group of, like, 10, 3 year three-year-olds in a room and say, here, kids, with no adult supervision, just get along. It might last for 30 seconds until one kid has a toy that another kid wants. Same thing is true with adults. Why can't we just all get along? Because it comes at a price. It comes for a fight, because there's somebody who doesn't want us to be in unity. The enemy doesn't want us to be in unity. He doesn't want us to live in right relationships. He wants us to be divided, and that's why the ultimate goal of the enemy is not to attack from the outside. It's to attack from the inside, because if he gets us to turn on each other, then he wins. Then, when, then, then then the conversation changes because then it isn't about God's mission, the gospel, reaching people, people being reconciled back to God, impacting our community, going around the world to see people know Jesus. It, that goes out the window. Why? Because all we're trying to figure out is how do I, not st- how do I stop hating this person who can't, I can't stand because now we're focused only on our fractured relationships. That's how the enemy works. And so when Jesus said that, that when he would build his church and not even the gates of hell would stand against it, guess what? The gates of hell don't come from the outside. The gates of hell come from the inside, and they come through our relationships. That's why there's this battle. There's, there's this fight that we have to constantly go after this battle for unity. That means to be in right relationships, to live authentically, you and I have to be proactive. Proactive. We have to constantly be working towards that, because by default, we'll end up in fractured relationships. And I've shared this before, but to me, I'm convinced this, this captures exactly how the enemy works among us. Now, I'm not saying that my dog growing up was possessed, but I do believe that my dog was like the devil, okay, in this area. We had a little miniature German Schnauzer. She's like 12 pounds, not a huge dog, but she had a pretty big bark. And so behind our house, the, the house that bordered our house on the back side, um, we had a huge fence that had ivy growing over it. And so we couldn't see into the neighbor's backyard, but we knew they had two dogs because we could hear two dogs barking. And so quite frequently, our dog would go back to that back fence, and she would just sit there, and she would start barking. She's a pretty smart dog. And then after like 30 seconds, one of the dogs on the other side of the fence would come over, and they would start barking back. And then probably another two minutes later, she would keep barking. Then the other dog in that backyard, the both dogs together would come, and they would start barking at our dog. And then she'd sit there, and she's still barking, and then she'd start running up and down kind of the the property line and and barking louder, and you could tell they would start running. And then before you know it, their barking would turn to growling. And then they would start going after each other. You could see the dust fly. And then I'm not kidding. So many times we would watch our dog. She would turn around, turn her back, and she would walk to the other side of the yard and then sit down. And meanwhile, these two dogs are killing each other on the other side of the fence. There's dust flying up, they're growling, they're barking, and it would go on for five minutes and then e- until one of them, I don't know if it got injured or finally they got tired and they stopped. But she would do that over and over and over again, and I had to think in her mind she had to be laughing, like these stupid dogs. So she would literally get them going. She'd just bark, and that would start, this chain of events would cause these two dogs to turn on each other. When we don't have right relationships with each other, that's the enemy's bark. He just starts barking and before you know it, we, we, don't, we don't hear his bark anymore. All we do is we hear the bark of the person next to us. We, we focus on the offense of what's happened. And because of that, we become distracted. And what does the enemy do? He walks away in laughter. says, Psh, I don't have to attack. They can take on each other. They can destroy each other. That's how the church gets destroyed. And that's why one of the things in, in church overall... And many of you who've, who've, you know, if you've been new to our church in the last couple of years, people will come to me and say, hey, you know, we're in transition, and I understand church transition happens, but one of the questions that will usually come up is, how are your relationships at your previous church? How are your relationships with your previous pastor? Is there an offense? Did you leave on good terms? Does your pastor know that you left? All those things. Because if you left fractured relationships there, you will find fractured relationships here. It will follow you. The enemy will work. And that's why you have to be healthy. We have to fight for that. And then the final, final thing that Paul highlights for you and I is in verse 28, and that is to live authentically, get behind the scenes, we have to strive for true generosity. So Paul goes on. He says, do something useful with their own hands that he may have something to share with those in need. So we talked about not being on the take. So the behind the scenes is that we have a tendency to manipulate people, Situations and and things that have to do with monetary gain for our benefit What paul does is he goes the next step He says stop doing that and In a sense do something with your life that gains you resource so that you have something to offer to other people So that you can live a life of generosity now Why is he saying that because the old way of living the falsehood that we live on says this It says I am the victim and I deserve what I deserve And that's the mentality that the old self lives in. That I am the victim of everything that's happened around me. Therefore, I deserve, I'm entitled to, I don't think about somebody else's needs. You owe me, and then we move to manipulation of how do I get what I think I need. And that's why we have $14 billion going to people who don't need it. Why? Because that's the mindset. I deserve this somehow. And Paul's saying, no, you have to see differently. You have to see beyond yourself to the needs of other people first, and realize what God has given you, what God has blessed you with, even when it comes down to monetary things, you earn money not for you and yours, you earn money for theirs, for the benefit of other people. It's having that, it changes. When our perspective changes, we realize that we are not stuck in this victim mentality that so many times becomes our life. And we can never get outside ourselves. And we, we have this idea that, and people have said it to me before, and it's, it's so counter to who Jesus was, which was, I have to take care of myself first. I have to make sure that the needs of my family are met first. And it's always, well, who's first? God's first. And that's why we're reminded throughout Scripture that if God owns everything, the resource comes from him, then he will always take care of our needs if we're focusing on the needs of other people. That's that's the challenge. But in our culture, it's like, no, let let me let me take care of what I need, and then that's called let me give you the leftovers of my life. How many of us know that there are never any leftovers? And if they are, they're scraps. But what if we we shift and we realize that we are not stuck, we are not victims, and that's the beauty of the cross. With Jesus' death on the cross, there is only one victim of our sin. You know who that is? It's Jesus. He's the one that took on our sin. We didn't die for our sin. He paid for our sin. And because of that, we are free no longer to play the victim. Because when we come to him and we confess our sin and we turn to follow him, guess what happens? He takes our sin, which, which he pays for on the cross, and then he gives us righteous, his righteousness in return. So we're no longer the victim. He's resourced our lives. If you and I can embrace that, it changes the way we live our life. It changes our perspective of other people. It changes our perspective of ourselves to a new way of living. Now, we all go through these challenges, and there's times when, yeah, there is times where our needs need to be met, but never at the expense of those around us. Otherwise, we get stuck in it. So here's an example. Let me close with this. So I've shared many times about our friend named Michelle, who was, um, before we first got to know her up in Newburgh, when she was, uh, came into our women and children's shelter um, off the street, she had two teenage kids, And the first night she came into the shelter, she made a very important announcement to everyone there. She said, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there is a God. I don't need you to tell me about Jesus. I don't need you to give me a Bible. I don't need you to preach at me. I just need to get off the street, and I need a place for me and my kids to stay. So the people, the volunteers were in the shelter, totally um, responded. They honored her wishes. Nobody shoved the gospel down her throat. No one gave her a track or a Bible. They just loved her. They just provided a roof over her head. They provided meals for her and her kids. And they did that for months. And after four months, she made this amazing discovery. And this is what she said to somebody in the shelter. She said, listen, she said, I have my whole life believed there is no God. She said, but today I believe there is a God. And the reason I do is because you people who don't even know me, have loved me and my kids unconditionally and put up with me for the last four months. She said, the only explanation I have for that is there has to be a God behind it. And that was the start of her journey. And a couple months later, she gave her life to Jesus. And a couple months after that, she got baptized. And about a year and a half after the day that she came into the shelter with her kids, you know what Michelle was doing? She was serving in that same shelter. She became a mentor to mom's, who are coming off the street with their kids and they were struggling. And the beauty of Michelle's story is that even after a year and a half, she could have said, Woe's me, had a rough go, had a really bad experience with my husband, ended up on the street with my kids, and now now at least I have a shelter over my head, and now at least my kids have something. But she never stayed in that mentality. In fact, today Michelle has her own apartment, she has her own job, and her kids are independent. It's beautiful. But she never stayed in that mentality of, oh, woes me. She realized God has blessed me in such a way, and now I understand you, is now I have something to offer that helps somebody else with their need. Some of us are stuck in that victim mode. Some of us are constantly on the take. And God has said, no, it's time to move beyond that. It's time to start investing in the lives of other people. It's time to start investing in the resource that you have in the lives of other people. Why? Because it's a new mindset. It's a new way of living. Our church is extremely generous. The church is us. It's not the pastor of the building or programs. And we are a generous church, but how much more at an individual level will we become generous when we move from being victim to realizing that God has given us enough to resource the needs of other people? I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and bow your heads just for a moment. I'm going to pray to conclude, but I want you to reflect on something right now that, that I believe will be important for this week. If you were here last week, you remember I asked you to do something simple, to do something different, and that was to go home a different way than you came. Again, starting, trying to start new patterns in your life. That was easy compared to what God calls us to do this week. Because to truly embrace a new way of living, that means there's something that has to be removed from our lives. It isn't just adding on. It's actually subtracting first and then adding on. So I'm going to ask you just with your eyes closed, I want you to see maybe you have a jacket or maybe a particular piece of clothing that is kind of something that you've had for a long time. In fact, maybe it is a jacket that, you know, once in a blue moon when it gets cold here, you, you wear and it provides comfort and you're familiar with it. But I want you to see that as something that maybe has become so comfortable to you that you don't even realize that it's something you need to remove. Because that jacket or that piece of clothing can represent the falsehood that we live in. And as that's put on you, you become so used to it, you become so familiar and so comfortable with it that you don't even realize that you're living out falsehood. And so this morning, what God is wanting us to hear is there's something in your life that has to be removed. There's something from the old you that has to stay in the past. And so this morning, what he's saying, today what he's saying is it's time to take off the falsehood. And so the falsehood for you might be that you know that you've been living out deceptively in terms of the way that you have lived your life to try to get people to think something about you that's not true. And God said, it's time to be transparent. It's time to open up your life. Maybe the the old falsehood that you left under is that you've lived with unresolved anger and you've lived in broken relationships and you've lived offended at other people. And God's saying today's the time to lift that off, to take that off. And maybe for some of you, God's saying it's time to move from victim to someone who's been forgiven and healed and resourced. And because of that, it's time to take off that victim identity, and it's time to put on the fact that your primary identity when you follow Jesus is child of God. And to be a child of God means you have everything that you need spiritually and physically for the life that God has for you. So I want you to envision right now you are moving that old thing off and now bringing on the new the newness of being honest and authentic, the newness of living in right relationships, the newness of being a resource for other people's lives. So, Lord Jesus, as we put on this new, it's not easy. This is hard, we know, Lord. But we know that your Holy Spirit lives inside of us, and because of that, we can truly be transformed from the inside out. We don't have to work so hard to make the outside look good. We can surrender ourselves to you so that you can make the inside right, and then the outside will look right. So Lord, give us courage this week to be willing to let go of the old and embrace the new so that we truly are genuinely new people embracing a new way of living together. In your name, Jesus, amen.